Welcome to the Growth Lab. I am Tej Singh, personal growth enthusiast, world traveler, sales professional on a spiritual journey to live my highest expression. This podcast is meant for individuals looking to evolve in all aspects of their lives. I interview leaders and coaches that have a passion to grow beyond the status quo and expand into their highest potential. Let's dive into it as we help you get 1% better with every episode. What's up, everyone? Welcome to episode 10 of the Growth Lab. Now, before I announce our guest for today, I want to take a second and thank everyone that's been tuning in thus far. Uh, I'm super grateful and I've really loved hearing all your feedback uh, and how you've uh, enjoyed the, the episodes thus far. The experience of recording these last 10 episodes has been amazing and helping you guys get better uh, is really fulfilling. Now, you have my commitment to continue to invite amazing people that are pushing to become the best version of themselves. They're looking to live purpose-led lives and challenge the status quo, just not live uh, in the societal construct of how we're supposed to live, but rather uh, you know, find a life that, that, means, uh, that has meaning and, and, and purpose. Now, our guest for today for episode 10 is Ezra Mitchell, who currently resides in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Ezra and I actually met in a unique way as well in Tallinn, Estonia for Mindvalley University in 2018. So Mindvalley as a company is mostly online and they're a personal growth transformation company, but they host um, a month-long university every year um, for transformational learning. And it's a really cool concept because they invite over a thousand people from 50 different countries to come to one place. Um, and, I, and this was one of the, the best decisions I made. This was actually a time in my journey when I left work uh, and I you know, sold everything that I had and I, this is the starting point. So it has a special place in my heart, this program and, and what it meant for me. And I met so many awesome people and Ezra was one of them. Now, Ezra is a professional coach and facilitator who works uh, in, in uh, whose work is centered around emotional health, communications and relationships. He guides his clients to break through past pain and limiting beliefs to live for an, from an empowered space of authenticity, self-love, and total ownership of one's experience. He works with teenagers, parents, and professionals to help deepen relationships and live powerful lives of purpose and meaning. In this episode, we unpack Ezra's fascinating journey leaving his engineering job in Austin to find his father in Indonesia, how healing parts of his inner child allowed him to step into being a man and really take ownership of his life and heal the parts that needed to be healed and finding purpose in his line of work and his upcoming transition, leaving Mind Valley to focus on his coaching practice. I'm really excited for you guys to listen into this episode because it was fascinating to hear his story. I actually didn't know this about Ezra, him leaving Austin and, and to find his father and what that meant and what transpired after and him moving to Asia. Just a very interesting story. So I'm, I'm excited uh, for you guys to tune in. Ezra, welcome to the Growth Lab. Thank you for joining us all the way from Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia. Great to be here, Tej. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Ezra and I actually met in, in a unique place in Tallinn, Estonia in 2018 for uh, Mind Valley University. And you know, part of the podcast, we'll get to that. But Ezra, really where I like to start is 
you know, we were talking about this earlier, is when you actually left the U.S. 20 years ago, uh, it was Austin, right, you said? Yeah, leave, leaving Austin. And I just wanted to say, like, what was the reason that, like, what was the compelling reason you left? And kind of just give us a little background on what's been happening since. Yeah, sure, man. Um, well, so I, I grew up in the States, uh, all over the East Coast. Um, and then I um, went to high school and college in Texas and actually started working in tech after, after college in Austin, Texas, when it was uh, right before the bust. I was lucky enough to get one of the last jobs before the bubble burst and my company actually stopped hiring for two years. Um, and uh, I was in electrical engineering. Uh, I was working, you know, doing the, doing the thing you're supposed to do, go to college, get a good job, you know, and then start, you know, buying stuff. I had a house, I bought an Audi, you know, all of these things that I thought I wanted. And uh, I had this existential crisis one day when I was 26, sitting in my cubicle. And I realized there's no way I can do this for the next 40 years. It just, it just, it finally hit me. And at that point, my whole, my whole life collapsed because uh, everything was driven before by this need to consume and buy things and um, fill my life with material possessions. And that was going to uh, make me happy. And after a few years of, of having the lifestyle where I could afford a lot, a lot of these things, it was not bringing me any closer to that, that goal or that dream that I thought I had. And this is when everything fell apart. And I had to, I had to ask myself, well, who am I now? Like, who am I actually? And what do I want? Because I guess I was told by society, because I like to work with my hands, go be an engineer because then you can make a lot of money working with your hands. And so I had no idea. So I was like, okay, I'll do that. And um, I didn't really understand how important it is to make better choices when it relates to taking on school debt, spending all that time in college and then in a career and all this. So I was lost basically. And I had no idea what I wanted to do next as far as work. The only thing I did know is that I wanted to travel. I had never gotten to travel outside the country after high school. I wanted to do the whole kind of Euro trip thing that people talked about back then and find myself backpack Europe, you know? I never got to do that. So I thought, well, this is a great time since I don't know what I want to do. So Europe's too expensive though. So I thought, well, I actually want to go somewhere that's so different from where I am in the States, so completely different. I want to go to third world. I want to go to, to chaos. I want to go to somewhere that will make me uncomfortable. And um, while I was trying to figure that out, I also came back to my own personal story of um, my father is Indonesian. I've never met him before. I'm 26 years old. I've never met my father. Why don't I go to Asia? Why don't I go to Indonesia? Why don't I go find my father? It's time. If not now, then when? Uh, so I didn't even know if he was still alive. So that's a whole nother story, but um, uh, I was propelled by this new, this new vision, this, this new uh, vision, this new kind of new mission. And um, I planned for about a year and a half. And then a year and a half later, when I was 28, I quit my engineering career. I bought a one-way ticket to Indonesia and, uh, and I left. Uh, I sold everything that I owned. Um, that was extremely liberating to go from my life is my possessions to um, I, I give away, I, I get rid of all my possessions and I left with two, two suitcases full of clothes. That was it. 
Um, and that was kind of the start of my own um, personal development journey as well, um, because I was a kind of like um, asleep before then. And that, that's when I kind of feel like I started waking up. But uh, and then that kick started. And, and that's I've been in uh, Southeast Asia for the last uh, 15 years, uh, most of it ever since then. Yeah, th thanks for getting started with that because yeah, there's so much to unpack there, right? There's a lot of years from from you you having left, um, and I didn't know that part, right? Like you having left um, Austin, and you know you were looking for your your father in Indonesia, uh, and I'm sure there's a lot lot there. Um, and then also you you talked about your personal development journey, how that kind of kicked off and a lot to unpack there. So let's, I mean, if you're open to sharing, you know, the first track, right? As much as you want to share around, you know, you kind of, um, you know, looking for your father in Indonesia, how did that, how did that end up? Yeah, totally, totally. Uh, I'm an open book. I always tell people, um, I, uh, I, I love, uh, I, I realize how powerful my story is in the service to other people and also to help other people um, heal. And so, um, yeah, I consider myself an open book, but um, my father is a big part of my healing journey and the story around it. Um, I had no idea about this when I was, uh, you know, going through that um, in my quarter life around 26, but I just, I guess, you know, I grew up uh, with a single mother. She was always working, um, so she was not even there a whole lot. Um, I raised, uh, you know, my little brother and I, we were raised by the TV and, uh, you know, we did all right. But I, I, I had those moments when I was growing up where, you know, I didn't know how to throw a baseball, you know, I didn't know how to play football. I didn't know how to talk to girls. And the, there were these mo key moments where I, it was really apparent of what I was missing or what I thought I was missing by not having a father. I felt like I needed that uh, energy, that, that, um, that model, that help in those certain circumstances um, in order to be a man. And so this was a, a huge story that I felt was missing. So when I had this like, existential crisis and I was like, well, I think it's time to go searching for something, uh, my father came back into the picture. And um, so I didn't even know if he was alive. Um, so my father, is a, he's a famous writer in Indonesia. He was um, a very... Uh, prolific back in the late 70s um, and he's considered one of the um, uh, most famous writers as far as Indonesian literature goes so I was able to google him um, and I found some some articles that were in Indonesian because I didn't even know if he was alive but I, I googled him he had a Wikipedia page I saw the articles that I found nothing had uh, parentheses right you know his birth and then uh, his death so I assumed he was still alive. Um, what looked like I found an article where it looked like he was speaking about six months ago at some university. So I was like, okay, great. He's still alive. Um, he's at this point, he's like 70 years old. So I can't really put this off anymore. If I'm going to go try to find my father and meet him, I, I should do it now while he's still alive. So I had no idea. I thought, uh, back then, okay, I'm going to go to Indonesia. I'm going to hire a private investigator, you know, just like you see in the movies in the States. And I don't know how I'll find him, but um, I'll find him. And um, I just started planning. I was like, I kind of had the belief that I would figure it out, um, even though he was in a city of 20 million people um, in Jakarta. Um, so 
short story, there's whole chain of events happened where I was at work uh, about six months later and um, I was in a meeting and there was a new engineer coming into my team and this guy, um, Anthony, uh, they introduced him to the team. Uh, I was telling about where he went to school and all that. And it turns out he was a Chinese Indonesian uh, from the city of Jakarta. So I was already planning on quitting the company. So after the meeting, I, I pulled him over and I said, hey man, come here. I got to tell you something, but you can't tell anyone else. In one year, I'm quitting and I'm moving to Indonesia, I'm moving to your city that you're, you're from. Tell me about it. Um, and then I told him my story about my father. He's, he's, he's this writer and uh, I, don't, you know, I don't know how to find him, but I'm gonna, I'm gonna go on this journey and I'm gonna rediscover my culture and learn the language. Two weeks later, Anthony comes up to me in my cube and he gives me this piece of paper and he says, here man. And I was like, what is this? He's like, open it. So I opened the paper and on it is my father's address and phone number. So wow. he had talked to a friend of his in, in Jakarta who talked to another friend who happened to work at a newspaper and actually had interviewed my father a couple of months earlier. And wow. so if you've ever read The Alchemist, um, there are these things in the book called uh, omens. They kind of got, they kind of um, let you know you're on the right journey. Mm -hmm. And this was a huge omen for me. So I thought <clears throat> this was one of the things that really helped me uh, understand that I'm on the right path. Mm -hmm. And this is, this is now, this is actually the direction that, uh, that, is, uh, that is clear for me to go next. So these kind of omens, these serendipitous moments uh, helped re reduce the fear uh, of the unknown and of change and all this and, and really empower me to move forward because uh, the doors were opening for me. Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. so, uh, um, I, I, you know, this was a crazy experience, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> um, yeah, it actually happens. Yeah, that's amazing. That's such an amazing story, uh, Ezra. And it's so interesting because the sort of the hero's journey that you described, the, you know, kind of reaching to a point of, exactly. uh, get, getting to a point of realizing like, hey, is this what I really want? And I've heard a lot of people go through that, but I would call you a, a bit of a pioneer because, you know, recently you hear a lot of people, you know, selling, I did the same, right? You know, a few years ago when I sold everything and I, you know, went off and that's actually where we met in Tallinn. I was kind of coming into that, having sold, left my job and having sold everything. And I, I, I bought a one-way ticket to Tallinn. Uh, but you did that, uh, you know, uh, some, some time back. So that's amazing. You know, you kind of pioneered that and, and kind of took the path where, you know, nobody had, many people hadn't done that, right. To see, okay, what's yeah. out there. And also you followed something that, you know, the, the story that you explained about your, your coworker passing that note, that's so amazing that, you know, that ended up happening and you, you, you went to Indonesia. So let's follow the journey then, right? Because, you know, I think a part of your journey was a lot about kind of a lot of unfolding, a lot of healing, a lot of expanding. So then you're in Indonesia. How long did you spend in Indonesia? Like what, what kind of transpired moving forward? Yeah, so I, um, I went to Jakarta originally, and that's where my father was. But so this was the first time. So I'd never traveled outside the U.S. Um, I didn't even have a passport when I decided to leave. Um, I had a lot of fear. And I realized after I got to Indonesia and it was completely different than my expectation, I realized how much fear I had been indoctrinated with in the US about, 
oh, you're in the best country in the world. We have mountains, we have beaches. You don't need to go anywhere else. It's unsafe out there. People don't like Americans. Um, you know, this was after 9-11. And so before I left, people were like, don't go. My, um, my grandfather on his deathbed, he was like, please don't go. And I, and I told him, I was like, I, I have to do this, you know, Bill. Um, I, I've, I've got to do this for myself and I'm going to be okay. This was right after this, the tsunami that had happened where, you know, it, it killed hundreds of thousands of Indonesians in a completely different island, you know, you know, thousands of, of miles away. But um, I, you know, I was, I lived in Texas for like 12 years and I'd never been to Mexico because I heard these stories of college students going there and getting their organs, you know, waking up in a bathtub and, you know, and so there was all this fear. Uh, and so I never traveled outside the, the U.S. And so when I got out, I realized these people, you know, I, was, I went straight to a Muslim country, the most populous in the world, from America. And that was scary for people that I told I was going there. And I, when I got there and I realized these people are just like Americans. They're just like you and me. They're just, they're just trying to survive. They're just trying to, you know, feed their kids and, have, and, and find happiness and all this. And it's... It's not what you see portrayed on the media. And so that was really eye-opening. Um, but this was my first time out of the U.S., so this was all new to me. And um, so I went to Jakarta for a couple of months, and then I had some contacts in Bali. Um, and back then, you could, you could Google. There was no social media back then, but you could Google, and you could find these photos. And I found these photos of Bali, and it was just like this you know, it was just like paradise, you know, it was like that tropic, that quintessential tropical island with the palm tree. <laughs> and you're just yeah. like, man, I've never seen this in my life. I have to go here. So I went there. Um, there were parts that were like that, but most of it wasn't like that. But um, I ended up uh, going to Bali. I was going to teach English. I ended up getting another job. All this other stuff happened. And um, uh, I kind of got caught up in my own story for a couple of months before I was ready to come back to Jakarta and find my father. But I ended up spending a year and a half in Indonesia. Um, I, you know, I, I got into public relations in a nightclub and then I became a, an actor and a model in Jakarta for six months. And that was uh, very um, enlightening to, to see actually the kind of lifestyle I didn't want. Mm -hmm. um, the money, the fame, those kind of people. Uh, it was um, it was fun at first, and then it became very depressing. And so then I left uh, Jakarta. I went back to Bali, um, but I was in Indonesia for a year and a half before I came back to the states for my next plan, and that was to become a business owner and kind of get the uh, the training that I believed I need before I opened a you know a restaurant in Bali. Gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, I'm sure there's so many little stories along the way. That, that we can we can go into but you know one thing you mentioned that i liked about you know making that leap because i know that's that's oftentimes so difficult right like you mentioned the, the fear around leaving something that you've built right because i i really felt that you know when i was leaving as well and the leap in itself was the biggest breakthrough because i i saw that it was possible Right. And then to some effect, you know, after a year of traveling, I came back and I'm back in the corporate world, which is completely fine. But I, I, I you know, kind of being able to come out of it showed me that that's always available, you know, but for a lot of people, 
it's kind of like the uh, golden handcuffs that they can never leave, even though if they've wanted to try something, right, or open a business of their own or, or you know, take that experience uh, trip or whatever the case may be, right, it's, it's, there's so much fear around it. So, like, was it, you know, even though everyone was telling you that, hey, you should perhaps not do this, like, what was it that you've, you know, that made you make that leap? Yeah, I think uh, it, it fears huge. And, you know, I still deal with it. Um, you know, we'll always deal with it in our life. And um, it's, it's how you change your relationship with fear um, is the most important because you'll never, you'll never essentially be fearless. You can, yeah. um, you can act fearless, but um, <laughs> to not feel fearless is another thing. Um, I think for me, it was, I had gotten to that point where the pain was greater than what I thought I was going to lose. And yeah, it's really difficult after you've invested all this time in college, um, you have all this money that you paid, maybe you're still in debt as well. You have all these other possessions that you invested in, your relationships, all of these things. Um, but I, I had this feeling when I was younger and I think it was, it was an egoic feeling. The feeling was I am destined for greatness. Um, I think the correct thing now that I'm older is I, I'm, I'm destined to do great things. Mm. And that, that really means to me to try things and to do things outside my comfort, comfort zone. I think that's mm. where I find my greatness. Um, I didn't know this at the time, but uh, one, thing, one thing that was really interesting is when I decided to leave, I planned a year and a half and the last year it felt like it was the last year of my life in Austin, Texas. Mm. So I was, I was going out, I was socializing more. I had the courage to talk to women. I was, you know, going to these part, I was partying like it was my last uh, year on earth. And so it was like, I was closing this chapter and it felt so liberating and it wasn't like I was afraid of death. I was afraid of what, what came next, you know, what the next transition was. And um, I'd have to think about that more to pinpoint like how I, I developed this courage, but it, it really, there was a pain and then there was a, uh, I had this belief in possibility. I just mm. had this belief that I could figure it out. And so I, I made plans though. I was like, okay, well, I'm going to quit. And I have, I only had $3,000 uh, to take with me uh, after I sold everything. And I was like, well, I need to be at least smart about this. So what do most foreigners do when they travel for work? Um, back then, 15 years ago, it was teach English. So I was like, okay, I'm going to teach English then in Indonesia um, and have that backup plan. But I was like, well, I don't want to just show up there and be like, hey, I'm ready to teach English and, and expect like I'm just going to get a job and it's that easy, mm. whether it is or not. So what I did was, okay, let me see if I can, if number one, I can teach English, if I'm good at it, and if I actually like it as well. So what I did was I found a literacy center um, in Austin, um, and I volunteered there for the next year teaching English to uh, immigrants as a second language. So these are immigrants from uh, South and Central America that were, that were working in the U.S. and they needed to learn English. And so I became a teacher and I taught for the next year. And this was one of my first um, experiences with volunteer work as well. And 
this was an important part of my story because when I took on that role as teacher, I then understood, I finally understood why friends of mine would work so hard for so little money. Mm. It clicked. Mm-hmm. And I, I, I got that first experience with service. And I was, I wanted to do more of this, but I, you know, in the future as possibly a career, but I didn't want to be a broke teacher stuck in this very structured system where you can't play outside the rules. So I was like, I love this. I want to do more of this, but, but not in this particular context. And mm. so I didn't know until years later that I could incorporate that in other things that I do. So I had this backup plan and getting a year experience in teaching, I felt comfortable like, okay, I can get a job teaching English wherever because I've done the work, I have the resume, all of this. And so it was these kind of steps. It was, it was having a little bit of savings. It was, um, so another really big thing really quick is back then there was MySpace. And what I thought, I don't know how I thought this, but I thought, hey, let me go find someone in Indonesia on MySpace and let me connect with them. So I went on MySpace. I don't, I, I don't know how, what I searched for, but I ended up finding these two girls in Jakarta that were in this punk rock scene. And they posted <laughs> all these photos of all these parties they went to, and they just looked super cool because they were, they were all you know, punk rocked out. They were going to these black parties and these rocker parties. And I was like, I was like these two girls look so authentic and so cool. So I messaged them and I said, I told them my story. I said, hey, I'm half Indonesian. My father is there. I'm going to come in a year, um, you know, how are you? And so we started this dialogue and had this a pen pal relationship with these two girls, uh, Kiki and Niza, over the next year. <laughs> and they offered to help me when I got there. They were like, uh, when, I, when I said, hey, I'm coming in a month, uh, I would love to meet you guys. They said, awesome, great. We're going to pick you up at the airport. We will help you land. We'll take care of you. Don't worry. And uh, it was amazing. And it was this was a kind of a breakthrough moment where I realized how important relationships are to cultivate and how they can help you. And so I landed in Indonesia and I had no idea what a, what a godsend they were because you come into the uh, Jakarta airport, nobody speaks English. There's all of these taxi drivers, you know, trying to get you to pay high fees to take you somewhere you don't even know. And if I had landed in, in Jakarta without, um, someone to help me, it would have been much more difficult. But they picked me up at the airport. They took me to a hotel in this cool expat area. And then they spent the next two weeks with me, taking me around the first weekend. They took me to two weddings, uh, a rock concert. They took me into another city. It, it was just an amazing experience. And it was because I had the audacity to, to put out my hand and say, hello, I'm Ezra. This is my story. Um, tell me yours. Yeah. So, yeah, I love that. I love that part of it. Yeah, because, you know, I, I can relate to that in some ways when I traveled, you know, I, I, I realized, you know, how resourceful you can become <laughs> when you're traveling in that way, right? Like how you can build relationships and how many people are willing to help. You just have to ask, right? Like, it's like, you don't see yeah. the kindness of people until you, you, you know, you're traveling and you meet someone, you know, uh, speaking a different language and they're just completely willing to help you. You know, it's, uh, it's, you really see that human, uh, human kindness come through 
when you, when you engage in that way. Uh, and I love yeah. that. Uh, really quickly, and we can kind of move forward into, you know, what kind of transpired in, uh, in Bali and then also, you know, you, you moving to Malaysia for the last couple of years, just to get closure on, on the piece about, you know, meeting your father. So, so did you end up finding him? What ended up happening and then you met him and, you know, and, and we can kind of move forward from that point. But I just wanted to make sure we find closure from you on that. Yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> sure. I'll, uh, I'll tell you that one quickly. Um, yeah, three months later, after I um, um, was in Bali, I, I went back to Jakarta and uh, I called up Niza, um, my, my friend, and I said, hey, I'm, I'm ready to uh, find my father could you help me? Um, so I just had an address and uh, she's like, yeah, totally. So she, so I flew there, I stayed at her parents' house and uh, one Sunday afternoon, we took a drive. We had to open up a map, like an actual map and try to find the street in this area that she'd been to before, but she wasn't too familiar with. And so we started driving around. We, it took us four hours. We drove around looking for street signs. If you've ever been to a third world country, uh, yeah. <laughs> street signs don't exist. The numbers uh, are not in order. Um, all of that. But we drove around uh, and it was an adventure. And we finally found this uh, Perumahan, which is like a neighborhood, Indonesian neighborhood. Uh, that was, it looked like it was correct. So we went into this neighborhood. Um, we found the street. We went to the street. Uh, and we found the house. And it was a Sunday, Sunday uh, evening at dusk. And we pulled up to this house and it was... Uh, all of the plants were overgrown. It almost looked like it was abandoned, kind of. But there was a there was a light on inside. So got out of the, the car, and uh, Anisa and I, and we, we walked up. There was a, like this white picket fence, and so we kind of stopped there, and uh, we started. Uh, she started calling into the house, just uh, you know, um, uh, his name, Patinarto, Patinarto, um, uh, hello. And she was calling for a few seconds and then we noticed the light turned off inside. So we're like, okay, great. So someone is home. And about, you know, 10, 15 seconds later, someone comes to the door and uh, this man comes out of the door and I instantly recognize him from the, the Google photo, uh, the Wikipedia photo. Uh, it, it, is, it is my father. And so he comes out, he's uh, dressed all in white in um, Muslim, um, um, you know, it's, I think he, was uh, finished praying. Um, he was dressed all in white and uh, he comes down the stairs and my friend's talking to him because um, she speaks Indonesian, of course. And she's like, uh, hello, ma'af, you know, sorry, Pat Denarto. Um, are you Pat Denarto? Um, and he's like, uh, yes, uh, yes, I am him. Uh, what's your business? And then she kind of points to me and this is where <laughs> he looks at me. And I, so I stick out my hand and in my broken Indonesian, I say, uh, 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 hello, yes, Saya Ezra, Saya Dari uh, America. I'm Ezra. I'm from America, and I'm shaking his hand. It takes him about two seconds to realize who I am, and yeah. at that point, he his eyes got really big, and he grabbed his heart, and then he turned around and he went back inside and he closed the door. And Lisa <laughs> and I are are looking are looking at each other like what just happened yeah. and so we're just standing there kind of uh dumbstruck five minutes later he comes back out uh the, the door opens he comes back out and he comes down and he says uh, i'm sorry in indonesian uh, of course uh, i was praying i had to go in and pray uh, he said something about uh, oh my god i don't believe my eyes 
Um, and then, so he went back and prayed and then he invited us into his house and uh, we had tea and uh, I'm standing there in the living room across from him and, and she's like, hug him. And so, <laughs> so I hugged him and it was, it was, it was a really surreal moment because I had never grown up with a father figure, none, there was none in the house. So to stand in front of this man that I come from, and I had no, I had no reference point, you know, I had no uncle or anyone to reference. And it was just like, this is my father. And, and it was a really surreal moment. Um, we ended up talking for, for four hours and um, uh, uh, that's a whole nother story, but um, uh, it was, it was, it was huge. It was like this, this hero's journey that I had gone on and, and, and here was facing off this dragon um, and, and surviving and then and then now finding this wisdom um, yeah. yeah absolutely yeah that's amazing that's amazing and uh, yeah i can i can o- only assume you know when you sort of decided you were going to go on this path for those you know for that year prior to you actually making the move and then go to indonesia that how much uh anticipa- how much you were anticipating that move and that that moment that happened, that one little moment of ha- actually meeting your father and then, you know, kind of moving forward from there. So that's, that's amazing that that happened. So w- what ended up happening from there? Did you feel like that journey was complete or then that was that just a milestone? And then you were, you know, what made you stay in Asia? Because you, you essentially moved, you live there now you live in Asia, you've been there for yeah. 15 years. So like what, what kind of comprised from there? Was that like, did you close the chapter there? Okay, this is complete. Now I kind of continue on. Like what, what transpired from there? Yeah, well, like the whole thing, it was like a Hollywood movie. You yeah. Know, meeting the father. And yeah. then, you know, after they, after you hug, that's when the credits roll and it's happily ever <laughs> after, you know. But they don't, you don't get to see of what it is to actually uh, have a relationship with someone that you've never known, right? Yeah. After 20 years, how is it to have a relationship with my father? And I tried for many years and um, it was difficult. And um, he was not interested in having a relationship with me. And this was very challenging with me. And so there was this whole other journey after that. Yeah. Over the next seven years where, um, and it took that, that long to really understand of what I was missing internally by not having his love, even when I was living in the same city as him. Um, and so I lived in Jakarta for six months. And, um, so this was a whole nother huge piece of the healing journey. But what I found in Indonesia is, um, whether it was the lifestyle or the quality of life or the opportunity, um, I just felt more at home in Southeast Asia than I do in the States. Hmm. Also, it's, it's kind of like the wild west out here. So it's like anything is possible. You can build a business um, and you don't necessarily need, uh, you know, all of these licensing and all of this, you know, all of these things that you need in the States that could take you years to get. You can just create something and go to market. And I had so many opportunities, people wanting me to work for them or to do this or to do that when I didn't even have a resume, I didn't have any experience. So, um, and it's just, I guess people, um, the quality of life here is, is a little bit, um, 
I don't know what it is. I, I guess, I think a big part of it is when you're a, a foreigner somewhere, you, you have the permission to kind of play outside the box. You're not held to the same standards. Yeah. So in the US, it's like people around you are, you kind of expected to be on the same course as them, right? You know, so they'll ask you, what are you doing? You know, how much do you make? You know, they look at the car that you drive and, you know, are you married? And so everyone categorizes you into these and compares you with them. But when you're a foreigner, you're kind of ignored because you're, you're different. So it feels like there's less pressure to conform as a mm. foreigner, as an alien. Yeah. Uh, so I feel freer. Also, being in another country where you don't fully understand the language for a while, you're not inundated by all of this media constantly that's telling you to buy this or be this or do this. And so you kind of have a bit of a filter in that and you can kind of do your own thing. And I love that about living in another country is I get to play and nobody bothers me. Yeah, I love that. I love that because it is and some of it is very subtle too you know like the subtle differences um in the states and and, and you know in, when you're in asia because i lived in asia for not a, not as close to to how, how long you've been there but you know when i was there on the trip you know a few months i was there and you do notice those subtle differences you kind of feel like you, you can kind of go on your own and not be consumed by you know society's way of being you know and not, not get consumed by that one of the things you said, you know, earlier in your in, in, in your path, when you realized you, when you became a teacher, you realized that was your f way of, of service. Right. And, and you found that service piece for you. And there, therein lies, you know, what you do for your purpose as well. So what does that look like for you today? You know, in, in having been in Asia for so long and, you know, perhaps you can speak to a little bit of how you were at Mind Valley to that service piece. But, you know, just just that component, you know, the service and purpose component. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, so what I realized when I left my engineering career is, um, and I think there's, you know, people find purpose and meaning, um, they can find it in their work or they can find it outside of their work. Sure. I am the type of person that I need to have that purpose and meaning in my work. Mm -hmm. I can't just go be an engineer and then I'll volunteer outside or I'll do, you know, social things or, you know, my po hobbies and passions. I actually, since I spend so much time and I put so much heart and passion into whatever I do for work, uh, whether I'm, you know, waiting tables or, um, you know, doing marketing or public relations uh, that I need, I, I've, I knew I needed to have purpose in the work that I do. Mm -hmm. And, um, so as I left engineering, I knew that I was, I was on this search for purposeful work. And I had about seven or eight careers in the last 15 years since I left engineering trying to find that purpose. So I went into acting, modeling, uh, became a prof professional DJ. I was also in public relations, promotions. I did marketing. Um, I did food and beverage management. I had my own food cart. Um, and so I explored all these different areas looking for this meaning in what I did. And when I found that, that it was not the path, um, I was able to change that and just drop it. Um, one byproduct of living with a very nomadic mother, uh, my mom, and moving around all the time is you get accustomed to change. And I think that's where one of the the benefits that I have of the lifestyle growing up as a kid 
I hated it. I went to eight different schools from kindergarten to my senior year, eight different schools. And as a kid, you hate this because you're always leaving your friends behind and you're always forced to make new ones. Um, and it was, it was traumatic. But I realized as an adult that I have this, this muscle of adaptability, of resilience, and of being okay with change and actually embracing change. It's one of my needs now is, is change and evolution and growth. So, but coming back to the service piece, I got a taste of that when I was teaching and I was like, I want to do more of this, but I also want to have an abundant life. How can I, I want to teach, but I want to make money as well. And it's not, I know it's no longer to buy things, but we're all, we, we all can have a great life in anything that we do. We don't have to sacrifice. Um, and it, I'm sure you probably learned this on your spiritual journey as well, is you don't have to make a choice between uh, spiritual enlightenment or you know financial abundance. You can't have both. Uh, you can't create both of those. It took me a while to figure this out because in the first I was like, oh, I don't want any of these possessions. I will be a monk and um, you know I will live without. And uh, that's the you know the enlightened way to be. Um, <laughs> yeah, and I think you're just hiding behind something else. But um, uh, and so as I did all these different careers over the last eight years, and I finally got to what I'm doing now, I finally found my mission six years ago, which is uh, within coaching. Um, it's empowering people. I call it coaching now, but I found it. And when I first found it, I was, I was a little, I beat myself a little bit. I was like, man, it took me 10 years to find this. I wasted so much time. I did all of this work that was a waste of time. But then I realized these skills that I developed in these other careers, I'm using all of them now. The public relations, I'm, I'm learning how to talk to people. Uh, DJing, I can, I, can, um, I can be more comfortable on stage, you know, running a, a food business, um, doing management in food and beverage. I love uh, people leaving my company better than when they arrived. You know, that's what you do in a restaurant. You want to fulfill people. And so I started to see how all of these things I did in my past, I was now using all those skills and leveraging all those skills and what I do now to build a business, my own business in coaching. And it wasn't a waste of time. And those were all steps on the journey. They were not necessarily the wrong directions, but they were steps ultimately on the, on this, on the, on the right path. And um, this was a breakthrough um, for me. And I was able to find that piece of, I wanna be of service, I wanna teach, I wanna mentor, and I wanna create an, an abundant life. And I can do that with a coaching business. And so it, it all funneled down and I found it, but I look, it took me 10 years to find it. And the biggest thing is, it was right in front of my face, but I couldn't see that it was there until I actually healed my story and healed the not enoughness of myself because I could never lead people um, and empower people if I hadn't done the same with myself, not just externally, but internally as well. And so when I healed that peace with my father, then I became ready to lead. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. I love that component of you know what you mentioned earlier about um, the spiritual growth 
and also you can you know be financially abundant is such a key point it's a common trap right i i fell into myself where you know you think they're they're you know yeah. part in some way you or you have to demonize you know and component of your life because now you are this person that is spiritual right like, i think it's there's a lot of traps there that you can fall yeah, into totally. but so, sometimes you have to go through it you know to realize totally, oh, totally. so it, there's there's some there's some beauty in that too just having gone through it and looking back and then that experience lives within you um and then you know also the part that you said about you know healing your not enoughness i think that's that's so key um you know, you, you, you know, we absolutely talked about your father being a big component of that and healing that part. So I appreciate you sharing that. Was there anything else that you had to do in the journey? I'm sure there was other things, you know, as you kind of had to, because that's such a big component, right? Like not enoughness. And I feel like a lot of people fall into so many different traps because they feel they're not enough, right? So either you're chasing the money and the cars and that, or you can even fall into that trap in personal growth when you're just chasing trying to become better and better because somehow when you take the five or six or seven courses, then you'll be enough. Right. So like, what did that look like for you? And how did you come to a point where you're like, okay, like I'm enough and then come operating from that place. Yeah. Um, this is a big part of my story because uh, what I realized on the, along the journey is that I was trying to substitute these pieces that I didn't create inside myself externally whether it was through possessions or it was through fame or it was um, through this kind of career or this kind of knowledge. And those things ultimately, they never filled those holes. And so even though I was on my personal development journey, I, there was still, still this part of me that was empty and unfulfilled. And it took me a while to get there because um, I had a lot of pride and ego. Uh, which I wasn't aware of. I was very adamant that I'm going to, I'm going to do this myself. And I want to say I did this myself and I didn't need anyone, any help. And I think this is a, a common story for men is mm -hmm. we have this pride and this inability to ask for help and a resistance to vulnerability because we think it's a sign of weakness. We've been taught that it's weakness mm -hmm. or, um, uh, we just don't actually understand the strength of vulnerability. And I went through this journey where I literally was, was at the end of my life and I had to finally be ready to ask for help. And that's when I had my breakthrough. I made more progress in two years asking for help, therapists, coaches, uh, friends, confidants, mentors, teachers, I finally asked for help. Then I did 10 years on my own. Mm. And I, I believe anyone can do it on their own. Everything you need is in, inside yourself. Um, there's nothing you need externally. And even your own path is inside of yourself. The only, the only difference is how long will it take doing it your own? <laughs> and that's yeah. the one thing we don't have unlimited resources of is time. And so maybe I could have figured it out myself in 20 years, but do I need to wait 20 years? Do I really want to be in pain for 20 years because I wanted to do it myself. And there's no, there's no reward to doing yourself. Nobody cares. And at the end of the day, you don't care because if, if you're not happy, it's like, it doesn't matter. Yeah. And when you do find that happiness, it's not going to matter. You did it yourself. Like that's more ego. It's just more ego. Yeah. So 
I got to this point where I was able to ask for help and I made so much more progress. And these coaches were the models that I would, they helped me through this intense pain. They helped me uh, focus my journey. And when I finally healed that core story mm-hmm. um, of I am lovable, I am enough, even without my father's love, even without my father's um, uh, desire to be in my life, uh, then, then I was ready to also help other people yeah. um, on that same journey. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. I think it's such a, such a big component of, you know, one is like, you've got to heal those part and you, and you've got to meet yourself in that deep way to be able to meet someone else. Right. I'm sure there's so many people kind of going through a similar journey where they haven't healed parts of themselves or just suppressed them. But then, you know, because you have now you, you've gone through that and you give others the space to be able to, to join that. And, and even in just sharing your story, right. You know, that's, giving giving people the permission to go there you know with themselves if they've if they've suppressed something um so so now Ezra I know you're kind of in a a uh, little bit of a transition phase it's been a it's been an interesting year so I know you're you're, you're you, you we were talking about this earlier uh you know you're you're starting your business you've already been in your coaching business and you have a partner now so what are you up to these days with your coaching practice I know you, you're doing some men's work tell us a little bit about that yeah yeah so I'm Shifting out of my work, um, I came uh, to work two years ago for Mind Valley um, and have this opportunity to contribute to a larger mission. And um, I kind of put my business, uh, my coaching business on the side. Um, I've still been coaching the whole time. I've just haven't been building my business. And now after two years, I'm ready to get back to my business um, and uh, uh, take my part in Mind Valley more part time. And um, they're allowing me to do this, which is great. So I'm able to, to get more of my time back to build my business. And so one of my teammates, Yvonne, we're building a, a men's program together, uh, men's uh, circles and workshops, um, because this work is, I, I believe, so needed, um, especially in uh, Southeast Asia. It's, it's a developing as far as personal growth and wellness. is It's, it's very in the infant, infant um, phase. And so there is actually, I'm in Kuala Lumpur, I, I, there's... 10, 10 million people, 12 million people here, something like that. There is no male facilitators here. There's no male coaches, not one. Wow. Um, and there's nobody doing men's work. There's nobody doing men's circles. And it's, it's very much needed and there are men looking for it. And so I've worked with women as well and we will work with women in the, in the future as well. But there is, I understand because I didn't have that support when I was growing up. Um, whether it was there, I didn't look, but it wasn't available. Um, and I know how much, how important it would have been if I had some kind of mentor along that journey, or even someone to bounce ideas with, or even someone to share with. And we have, if you've ever been to a men's circle, you know how powerful they are, just sharing your story. And that's it. And how cathartic that can be for, mm-hmm. for many people. And the men that come to our circles, they've never been to a circle before. Some of them have never shared their story with anyone, not even their wives. And they have these breakthroughs in the span of two hours just sharing with other men. And then they start their journey. Then they start their hero's journey. So we're building offline workshops here in Kuala Lumpur and Singapore um, and doing the online stuff as well. But it's really... It, I'm, I'm ready to get back to 
Um, and this is also another hero's journey for me is really stepping up and owning my own story and being able to express that on video. Um, you know, I think we're, we're always going to have this fear of what do people think, you know, are they going to, am I going to be received well, you know, the haters, the comments, all <laughs> of these things. And it's, everyone has a voice now, even your, your critics have a voice now. And so there's always this constantly testing, testing, um, am I ready to show up? Do I really not care about what people think because I'm doing this, you know? And so this is another level of my growth is stepping back into my own thing and being able to share my voice unapologetically and just own it, uh, who I am and not worry about what other people think. And it always, always focus in on this, what I'm doing is in the service of others. It's not for myself, it's in the service of others. And so it doesn't matter what people think about me. It matters, is this message going to help change other people's lives for the better? Absolutely, I, I love that Ezra. There's a couple of points I wanna emphasize that, that you mentioned, right? I, I love that you're doing this work in Southeast Asia. I, I sometimes find it funny, you know, I, I lived uh, in Southern California for a couple of years. And, and I think all the coach, somehow all the coaches are there, <laughs> right. And all the, yeah. all the, all the men's facilitators are there and you see it so much. Then, you know, I, I had this contemplation one day, I said, you know, there's a lot of people out there that need the help. And in places like that, you know, just exactly what you're saying. And, and it's a place of 11 million people and there's no you know, men's facilitator or men's group like that. So there's definitely need for that in remote places where people can't, don't have full access obviously we live in a in a, a world an internet world where people can find it but you know it's different obviously it's a funky year too with covid but outside of that you know being there in a place and, and, and serving men and serving you know human beings in that way it's, it's such such good work so i appreciate you doing that and where you're doing it um and also you know another reflection i had throughout the conversation is that you're never really ending your hero's journey, right? Like it isn't a, a start yeah. and a stop, right? You're always going through a, a, a new phase, right? A, a evolved phase. So, you know, that's what I find for myself too. It's just like, there's never a, a start and an end until you actually die, right? Like that, that might be a, a perceived death at that point. Um, but you're always going through a new round and it's always going to get deeper yes. and you're going to, you're going to sharpen, yes. you're going to sharpen your purpose. You're going to sharpen who you are, you know, continue to evolve. And that's beautiful, right? Like that's the beauty of life. And, and I really uh, see that in this conversation today, right? Like I saw that for you where you, you know, left your engineering job and you kind of had the journey of going to Indonesia to meet your, find your father and what that looked like for you, all the breakthroughs and healings that came out of that. And then you continue your journey and there was another round of that and another round and you did so many different things and that, that's beautiful, right? It's so, so beautiful to kind of go through those things and that'll continue. That was another great reflection for me. And, and also the last thing, you know, with service and what you're doing is just getting out of the way, right? Like it's not about you, uh, the yeah. individual and the ego, it's about others. So whatever it is, and that's really what I think, you know, at the end of the day, if you were to just take away everything around purpose and, um, and meaning in life, it really comes through service and serving others and getting out of the way, right? And you know, that, that's really where you can find a lot of meaning in life.
So I really appreciate you sharing your story, you know, telling us about the breakthroughs that came along the way. We could probably talk <laughs> for a few hours and going through some of those, some of those things. Um, totally. But, but any, any closing thoughts uh, before, before we let you go? Yeah, um, I guess um, in sharing my story, I realized that, yeah, the, one of the key points is, um, and you mentioned this earlier, is like, how do you break through that fear? And um, you get, you change, at least for me, you change, I've changed my relationship with fear by being willing to try. And having this idea in the back of my head that I'm going to be okay and I will figure it out. Mm. I'm, I think many of us are very um, um, capable and we can figure it out no matter how it, what, what shows up in our life. Um, we can figure it out. And so, and the more you're willing to try and the feedback you get, the, the, the more confidence you get, you know, so confidence comes through action and the reduction of fear and the changing of your relationship of fear comes through action as well. And so, I mean, I'm, you know, I'm uh, leaving my job full time during COVID. And so this is another <laughs> time where I'm being tested. Will I be okay? But I've got to remind myself is I will figure it out. I will be okay. Um, I've done it every time in the past and I can do it now, but you're always, you're always going to be tested. And so this is, this is my next test, but I have that belief and I have that experience that I've done it before. So yeah. um, this is what I just want to share with your, with your viewers um, in um, changing your relationship with fear and, and, you know, making it your friend rather your, than your enemy. Yeah. I love that. Thank you for sharing that. Cause it's such an important component and it's fear. Fear is where inaction comes from. Right, and action comes from. I love, I love the way you explain that. Now, lastly, Ezra, if people want to find you or they want to engage with you with with the stuff that you're doing, where where, where can they find you? Yeah, yeah, you can check me out. Um, uh, my website is ezramitchell.com, and then my Instagram is uh, Ezra Mitchell at Ezra Mitchell, and then the project that I'm doing with Yvonne is uh, called the Self Mastered Man. So we have an Instagram as well, the Self Mastered Man. And uh, you'll be able to find all about uh, myself and what we're doing on that. So uh, thank you so much, Stitch, uh, for this uh, interview. It was, uh, it was great. I lo uh, loved it. Yeah, thank you, Ezra. Thank you for joining all the way from Malaysia. Appreciate it. Yeah, thanks, man.